This is Dr. Chad Edwards, and you are listening to podcast number 81 of Against the Grain. What guy doesn't want to maximize their testosterone? Through using all natural and organic ingredients, men now have an option for a locally made paraben and sulfate-free shampoo, conditioner, and face wash. Not only does Dude's Manly products smell great, which drives ladies crazy, by the way, in a good way, they put a unique spin on their shampoo with it actually having a dark gray color because of the coconut shell charcoal that is used to remove the toxins. Dude can be purchased at the Tulsa Men's Shop and also online at www dudemanlystuff.com that's d-o-o-d manlystuff.com this is dr chad edwards and we're back for another edition of against the grain podcast i'm honored to be joined by my good friend dr heath travis welcome thank you so much for having us so we've been recording a couple of podcasts you were you're just a a a captive person and you couldn't get away and i was like hey dr travis you got to come join me for this one i'm glad to be here so I'm ready. They, thanks for joining us you know it's uh, we've we, obviously we've had some great topics um and we're going to shift gears just a little bit and talk about one that is a is a big passion of mine that is definitely against the grain and this is my second in a series i don't know how many will actually do on on lyme disease uh, but this is Number uh, number two in this series, we did one on the lab diagnosis of Lyme disease. Uh, so if you want to know, you know, you, th- you think you have Lyme disease or you think you've been exposed or you went to your doctor and they told you you didn't have Lyme disease, then go listen to that one to find out why you may actually have it. And the testing that was done for you is not reflective of what's actually going on in your body. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Lyme disease and where it came from and all that kind of good stuff. So, uh, you know, if you've got anything to add, by by all means, uh, you know, jump jump in. So, um, this you know, Lyme disease. I don't see. Uh, you know, I, I had a tick bite on my leg. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, and called one of my good friends, and she she said, um, and I actually had a rash around it. And I didn't have any symptoms other than the rash. I didn't have any symptoms. And so called her and I was like, you know, I'm just a little bit nervous about this. And she was like, oh, Chad, I don't know why you're even asking the question. Go get yourself or, you know, she, she called in the prescription for me. And um, so I wasn't having to treat myself. <laughs> and she uh, she put me on uh, doxy, doxycycline, took it for 30 days. I, I'm fine. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people experience that. A lot of people will be on antibiotics for 14 to 21 days and they'll do well. The problem is, is there's a lot of patients that, whether they get treated or not, don't do well. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Lyme disease caused by the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi. Now, there are other spirochetes, tick-borne illnesses. Uh, You know, here in Oklahoma, one that we have is STARI, um, which is Southern Tick Associated Rash Illness, which is like another way of saying, this is Southern Lyme. I mean, give me a break. It's... It's the same thing. It's not the same thing, it's, but it's the same thing. It's caused by another, uh, it's, it's caused by a Borrelia spirochete, uh, we think, but it's uh, the, the bacteria that they think causes it is Borrelia starii. Yeah, I didn't make that up. Uh, let that soak in for a little bit. Uh, Borrelia starii. Yep. It's good. Um, straight from the Oklahoma Department of Health website. Um, the... Um, and I mean, that's it's, it's legit. It's true. It's, there's stuff there. But to say that we don't have Lyme disease in Oklahoma is is really uh, putting the blinders on and sticking our head in the sand. I and mean, that, that's that's what it is. 
again, going back straight back to the Department of Health website for uh, Oklahoma, it says right on the website that we have isolated Borrelia burgdorferi from ticks in this state. Which means we should have it. Which means that it's very possible that we can have Lyme disease in Oklahoma. You can get a tick bite and get Lyme disease in Oklahoma. Straight from the Department of Health's website. They'll say although rare. Now again, if you go back and listen to the first in this series, you'll understand why they think it's rare. I think it's more common than they think it is. Um, and we're working on that. We're trying to provide the evidence to get the awareness out there uh, to let people know and let physicians know that there's more to this than meets the eye. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, wanted to go through a little bit of history and kind of where this came from. We've been dealing with Lyme disease. This is not a new entity. Uh, it has been around forever and a day. Uh, and so just to kind of illustrate that in 19, I'm sorry, 19, 1883, <laughs> you know, 123 years ago, uh, Dr. Alfred Buchwald described Acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans, uh, which or ACA, which this is a um, it, it's a skin issue that usually appears late in the disease, late in Lyme disease, uh, usually caused by Borrelia afzelii, maybe another Borrelia, uh, which is the other you know the Gorinii is the most common European Lyme. So we were talking about one of your friends that may have been exposed to Lyme. Absolutely. This is a worldwide problem. It is not confined to Lyme, Connecticut. It's not confined to the Great Lakes and Northeast only. Um, this is a worldwide problem. We see it in China. We see it in Europe. It is a worldwide problem. In fact, they estimate that 6% of the Chinese population has Lyme disease. 6%. Wow. You know how many Chinese people out there? <laughs> that is a huge population with Lyme disease. So That's big crazy. problem. Um, in 1909, Arvid Avzelius described an expanding rash. It was later called Erythema chronica migrans, which is the, the signature rash for Lyme disease. The name was later changed in 1990 um, to remove the chronicum because this rash is not chronic. Uh, in fact, it can last hours. And less than 50% of the population, depending on the study, less than 50% of the population that gets Lyme disease has a rash. So even though it's part of the diagnostic criteria, according to the IDSA and, um, uh, and the CDC, it is not, there are a lot of patients that get Lyme disease that don't ever recall a rash. Wow. Wow. So uh, 1921, uh, Arvid Avzelius uh, connected the disease with joint symptoms, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second, uh, and possibly linked the disease to a, uh, a tick bite exposure. 1922, the disease was associated with neurologic dysfunction. So we've got nerve problems associated with this. 1930, the disease was associated with psychological disorders. Things like depression, uh, borderline personality, or not borderline personality disorder, uh, bipolar disorder. There's, there's a number of psychiatric things that, that have been associated. Not saying if you have bipolar disorder that you, it was caused <laughs> by Lyme disease. Right. But, you know, that's, that's another, another possibility. Uh, 1934, disease caused, or disease is associated with arthritic symptoms. It's one of the main things that we see, uh, you know, patients will come in. You were talking about, uh, you know, one of your friends. That Absolutely. A lot of joint issues. And if you've got a migrating, you know, th today this knee hurts, then it's my left elbow. And then it, what does that? That's that migratory muscle and joint pain. You've got to consider one of these tick-borne illnesses as a possibility. Uh, it's not diagnostic, but it's a possibility. Um 
1965, Dr. Sidney Robbins described an expanding circular rash and monoarthritis. In fact, he called this uh, a specific entity called Montauk knee. And this was a, a knee pain and then uh, this monoarthritis and they had this circular rash. Interestingly, it improved with penicillin. So, you know, what's that about? Well, suggestive that it's, that it's a, an infection. 1970, Dr. Rudolf Scrementi is a dermatologist, published the first report on erythema chronica migraines. Uh, and interestingly, again, it responded to penicillin. Penicillin is one of those antibiotics that, has, that works on cell walls. Spur, the the, uh, the um, Borrelia is a spirochete that has a cell wall, at least in one of its forms, which again, we'll talk a little bit more about. 1975, Polly Murray was a mom in, uh, in Connecticut that contacted the CDC and that her effort plus a bunch of other moms, uh, the CDC sent Dr. Alan Steer, he was a rheumatologist, into the uh, Lyme, Connecticut area uh, because of a complaint of a, a cluster of patients that had these swollen joints and a rash. <coughs> Excuse me. He thought it was an autoimmune disorder. So you were asking about the, yeah. the auto, autoimmune con, uh, association and he actually recommended that they treat it with aspirin and steroids. So in the, in, you know, 1970 or 75, in 1982, the CDC sent, or, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the NIH sent an epidemiologist, uh, Willie Bergdorfer, uh, into, uh, Shelter Island in Eastern Long Island, New York. And he identified, he was also a Borrelia specialist. So he, he knew a lot about the Borrelia bacteria and he isolated this spirochete that grew in these, uh, uh, these deer ticks and black-legged ticks, and uh, he was the first to isolate Borrelia burgdorferi, and they named it after him. Um, so hence the, hence the name of this thing. So there's the other thing, so there's quite a history of Lyme disease. It's, you know, obviously we, uh, we didn't know what we were dealing with back then, but we started seeing these arthritis issues, some skin issues, uh, some things like that, and um, it's, it's been an issue for a long time. They've, and it goes back further than that even, but those are the uh, you know, the, the points that I wanted to kind of bring up. But it's important to understand that there are a lot of different species of Borrelia. You know, I mentioned two uh, previously, but one of the other things is, you know, I, actually I mentioned three, uh, Borrelia starii. The, right. that's, that, is a, that is one of the species of Borrelia. It's a tick-borne illness. Uh, you've got um, myomotoi, you've got, which is a relapsing fever associated with ticks. I mean, you've got all these different Borrelia uh, bacteria that cause all kinds of problems. And interestingly, I've heard that ticks are the dirty needle of nature. So, you know, you think about these, these ticks will bite on anything that has blood. You know, go look at your dog and like pull the number. My, my dog can find a tick in a pond. I mean, we pulled so many ticks off her. And just because it's wintertime, by the way, does not mean that there aren't ticks out there. They, uh, they have identified ticks north of the Arctic Circle and interestingly, 20% of those, greater than 20% of those, are positive for Borrelia burgdorferi. Wow. North of the Arctic Circle. So you can get Lyme disease north of the Arctic Circle. It's shocking. It's amazing. That truly is. Um, I mean, I, again, like so many other topics we talk about on this, I can't make this up. <laughs> uh, the Borrelia bacteria is an incredibly complex bacteria. It is the most complex uh, genetic structure of any bacteria. That think about it as a smart, uh, as a super bacteria. It is able to do a lot of things because of the complexity of its genetic code. 
It adds plasmids, which that's you know beyond the scope of what we can talk about in this podcast. Uh, but it adds all kinds of things that give it the ability to survive in a variety of hosts. Borrelia can survive in rodents and in birds and in reptiles and in mammals and in humans. And in, you take a bacteria that's able to survive in each one of those hosts and transmit to a, you know, to a tick and then to something else, that's a, that's a very wide margin. I would argue most humans can't survive that level uh, of complexity. Um, so these are amazing bacteria. Um, and it has many different survival and adaptive mechanisms that enable it to do that. And that comes from that complex genetic code that it has. It has the capacity to change. Interestingly, there's two studies that illustrate this. One was in 1971. This guy named Falsenfeld noted that the Borrelia adapt to their local environment and vectors. So if they're in a bird, they adapt and they change versus when they're in a rodent. So this bacteria will change. Uh, the argument that he made is this is the, that, that it has the ability to, to develop many new varieties. A quote from him. This variability could lead to new, as yet unseen, forms of disease. When, uh, I think it was, um, was it <coughs> William Mosler? Uh, I can't remember exactly who it was, but uh, he said, um, if, you, if you know, um, oh, good grief. <laughs> um, if you know syphilis, you know medicine. Syphilis, interestingly, is a spirochete similar to Borrelia. But uh, it is, and you know, syphilis was called the great imitator. Right. And the, the, uh, the Lyme disease bacteria is more than five times more complex in its genetic code than, uh, than syphilis, the great imitator. So you talk about the great imitator on crack. That's, that's what we have here. That's what we have here. Wow. Um, in 1989, this is a very interesting point, and if you don't get any other point from this, then... Uh, from, from this podcast than this. I think this is very important. In 1989, this guy named Pagner, he infected mice with Borrelia burgdorferi. And remember, there's different strains and there's different species, but we're talking about a specific species. And he injected the, the, uh, a, a mouse. He infected the mouse with Borrelia burgdorferi. But as he studied this, the brain isolate, what they identified, what they isolated from the brain, was different than the strain they isolated from the blood. And the point was that the environment in which the bacteria lived altered the gene expression of the bacteria. And we've noted that similar changes occur when Borrelia pass from the tick to the human. So that means that the bacteria in one place looks different than the bacteria in another place. Same species, different strains. To illustrate the importance of strains, we've, you know, you've heard of E. coli. Absolutely. So we know that E. coli live in, everybody has it in their gut, but, which is normal. But if you get E. coli 0157H7, it causes hemolytic, hemolytic uremic syndrome and you can die from that. So you have one that's normal and natural and arguably healthy, and then you have one that's fatal. Absolutely. Same bacteria, different strain. So if you wonder about the importance of strains, look, consider E. coli 0157H7. So the different strains of Borrelia make a dramatic and profound difference. So when it comes to, and I think I talked about this a little bit in the first podcast on this, where we talk about the different strains of Borrelia. 
the B31 strain is what was identified from eastern Long Island, New York. That is not a human strain. It was identified from a tick. That doesn't mean you don't get Lyme disease from it, but they identified it from a tick. We know that this bacteria can alter its expression based on its host. So it can be different in a tick than it is in a human. Doesn't make it a different bacteria, it's a different strain. Because these things change in culture, they lose plasmids, they lose pathogenicity, they change. They vary. It is very different from that which is infecting patients. It can be very different from that which, which is infecting patients. So the B31, and I talked about this in the first podcast, B31 is what the, the testing is based on. So if you go get Lyme antibody testing, if you get an immunoblot, a Western blot test, it's based on the B31 strain. I had a patient today that had a negative Western blot based on their standard testing. When we did an Igenix test, it was positive, looking at the same parameters, but the one from the regular lab, B31 strain only. The other lab added additional strains wow. and was, was profoundly abnormal and positive for Lyme disease by even CDC criteria. So wow. the strain yeah. matters. But the interesting, this, this is where it really starts getting inter interesting to me. So Borrelia burgdorferi is immune suppressive. So when we talk about you know, the autoimmune nature, when we talk about the, the variety of ways this can present, Borrelia is immune suppressive. We fight these infections with our immune system. Think about these as the ninja bacteria. I mean, that, that's, probably, that's, well a, that's probably a really good way to say that because they suppress and evade the immune system in a remarkably uh, profound way. So they, this bacteria affects specific parts of our immune system, specifically the B cells and the T cells and the natural killer cells. And it, it suppresses and kills the T and B cells in culture. So in, in, when we culture them out and see it in a Petri dish, it suppresses and kills these, these, um, these specific parts of our immune system. Plus, it prevents maturation of the natural killer cells. Part of the immune function is the maturation of these natural killer cells so they can identify a specific target. And, uh, and it does that by promoting, um, I'm sorry, by suppressing uh, CD56 and CD57. So in the immune cascade where we're trying to develop a specific target against these things, these guys have you know, become the super ninjas in, in evading this thing. Uh, they cause a defect, and this part, I mean, I keep saying this over and over again, but this is just fascinating to me. They cause a defect in the B cell signaling, so part of that immune system, uh, so that the innate immune system stays active. And when it stays active, it causes a whole host of things. Sorry, I hit my, my as I'm waving my arms, as I'm ranting and raving about this stuff. Uh, so you, when you, with this B cell signaling, you have a, an ongoing cytokine cascade. So cytokines are these immune signaling things like interleukins, and they're all, so these cytokines are part of the inflammatory process. And so you can have this flu-like symptom and inflammation, which is independent of the disease, because we're talking about the toxin that does some of this. And you have this ongoing, so you have this uh, flu-like illness independent of the disease because of the way the Borrelia do this. But this ongoing inflammation and the IgMs, one of the early antibodies that shows up after you get exposed to an antigen or a bacteria or a virus or, anything, or you know, a vaccine or anything else, 
And this ongoing inflammation and IgM, which is by that B cell activation, does not help the body in clearing um, the infection. So you have this revving up of the immune system because of this B cell dysfunction in its signaling. So it's this altered signal. It's almost like you're causing a fire, you know, for, you know, for the army fort. So everybody runs to go put out the fire and they sneak in the back door. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's shocking how, how interesting and complex this thing is. It's just fascinating. It really is. Um, and so you have an upregulation of these inflammatory cytokines, but you also have a downregulation of anti-inflammatory cytokines. So you, you know, ISIS couldn't come up with a better, uh, <laughs> with a better target. You know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. So there's a whole lot going on here. There's a lot going on with, uh, uh, with Lyme disease. There's a lot, it causes a lot of chronic problems, but so many physicians will say that it doesn't cause uh, a chronic infection that you just treat it for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, and you're good, and that's all you need. And I'll tell you, it's hogwash. After we come back from the break, we'll talk more about that. Are you tired and fatigued? Are you frustrated with doctors because they just don't seem to listen? Do you want to fix your pain without surgery? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then we are the clinic for you. We offer prolotherapy, PRP or platelet-rich plasma therapy, and stem cell injections, IV nutritional therapies, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, and functional medicine to get you back on track to optimal health. Call our clinic at 918-935-3636 or visit our website at www.revolutionhealth.org to schedule your appointment today. All right, guys, we're back. We're still here with Dr. Heath Travis. Um, we are sitting here talking about uh, Lyme disease and having a good time <laughs> talking about all the, all the shocking and amazing things. I mean, crazy, I, crazy stuff. I, uh, you know, as I, as I read about this stuff, it's just like, you gotta be kidding me. It's amazing. It, it truly is. Kind of like I was telling you, I had a, a friend that was diagnosed after being in Europe with right. Lyme's. He was diagnosed a year later and it took a lot of testing right. to make it happen. Right. But then we watched his joints over the course of 10 years just go through absolute misery and pain. Right. Trying to fight this thing off. Right. But it's really just now getting to the point where it's manageable. Right. It's, it's, a, it's rough. It is. It is. And how many patients, because of the way the testing is done, the way we understand the testing or don't understand the testing, how many patients are walking around with Lyme disease or some other tick-borne illness like Stari, uh, where they're having chronic and long-term implications that no one is even addressing? I can tell you that I'm, I'm you know, I have patients that come in and they're like, well, why? I asked my doctor to test for this and they wouldn't do it. I can tell you as a board certified family physician, I was not well trained. And I can't say that everybody's that way. I don't mean to throw darts at anyone else. I can only speak from my experience. I was not well trained in looking for uh, these, these things. I did not understand. I, mean, I, I could have told you, okay, yep, Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, and that was my board question, and that was it. <laughs> yep. You know, the, that, that's all I knew. I didn't understand the B31 strain. I didn't understand the, two thir- uh, the 297 strain. I didn't understand the, the complex genomic structure of these things and how they change epitopes and all these things. So I didn't understand that. And, you know, we as physicians are supposed to help our patients. We don't know everything. A lot of patients think we do. Uh, some physicians certainly act like they do. Uh, and we don't, Absolutely. um, we, we don't know everything and we have to, you know, God has a really nice way of keeping me humble on a daily basis. Uh, so, um, 
But we just have to stay vigilant and, and those kinds of things. And so some patients will say, why didn't my doctor do this? Well, because they didn't understand it. Um, you know, should they? And I would argue yes. And one of my favorite quotes from the Bible is, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. I, I love that quote. Um, so, you know, before we talked about uh, the number of issues with Lyme disease, some of its history, what it does to just cause the immune system to implode and why I, I'm, I'm just going to start calling it the ninja, the, the ninja bacteria or the ninja disease because it really sneaks up on you and, and you don't really stand a chance, really? sort of. Um, so why does this thing cause a chronic infection? You know, the immune system is such that you get exposed to something, you develop an inflammatory immune response, you make antibodies against it, you kill it, it's done, you move on. That's the IDSA. Uh, that's what they tell us that this that this happens. This we don't get chronic Lyme disease. I would argue that we do, uh, and I think there's plenty of studies out there that show that we do. So how how does this happen? Well, the first one is the uh, we get this chronic illness and chronic disease, chronic infection because of the induction of the immune system in the way that we just described. It's a ninja bacteria uh, that is able to el elude the immune system in a number of different ways. One of those is what we call epitope switching, where we are switching uh, these, these antigens uh, frequently, and it allows the bacteria to evade the immune response. And you have some minor epitope switching every few days. You have some major epitope switching every few weeks. So it is, it's very interesting how uh, this thing can evade the immune system. The bacteria are very, very slow growing. We talked about this in the first uh, podcast on Lyme disease. They're very slow growing, which means they culture. Uh, it's very difficult to get a culture. They grow very slowly. I think the culture time is like 10 and a half weeks, um, uh, 10 and a half months, something like that. I don't, I'll have to go back and listen to my first podcast. Uh, but it, it's a very slow growing bacteria. Um, the, uh, the double time in measure, is measured in, in up to weeks. Um, there are periods of this bacteria where the, it's dormant and it's, it's considered latent, uh, where the bacteria are not dividing, but... They will continue to produce toxins, which causes all this immune system problem. So the bacteria, it's not like a standard infection where you get a staph infection or a boil or a cellulitis and the bacteria are constantly dividing. You give something like penicillin, which works on the cell wall of dividing cells. Uh, it, it doesn't do that. So penicillin, while it can be effective, uh, it doesn't catch everybody. And it's because these things are very slow growing and there are periods of this dormancy and latency uh, where they continue to produce toxins. So they're causing problems but they're not dividing. Then we have the ability of these things to transform into three different forms. So, I mean, again, when you talk about, I mean, this thing's like so ingenious how it's got multiple different ways of doing this stuff, but you got three different forms of the bacteria and this is documented. This isn't, uh, we have electron micrographs. We have pictures of this. This isn't like, well, we think it might do that. We have pictures right. of it. Uh, it is solid, firm stuff. So the first thing is the spirochete, the standard bacteria has a cell wall. Um, that, that spirochete is one form. And different kinds of antibiotics will work on that specific form. But it can also change into a cyst form. So it will wall itself off, loses, I believe it loses its cell wall, uh, but it goes dormant basically into this cyst type form. And a different kind of bacteria, uh, antibiotic is required to treat that specific form. Then we also have what's called an L-form bacteria, which is an intracellular form of the, of the bacteria. It lives within your cells. 
So now you have to have an antibiotic that can get within your cells. And since it doesn't have a cell wall in the L form, is a different kind of antibiotic than a penicillin. So it causes all these immune host problems with, with the signaling. It's very slow growing. It changes epitopes. It changes forms. has all kinds of problems that it can cause. And, and, it, and it evades the immune system, which is why we can have this chronic infection. But it also has certain protective niches. And these niches and thing, are things like ligamentous structures, connective tissues, the eye, the central nervous system, uh, intracellular. Each one of these, you know, when you think about, we talk about ligaments and tendons Absolutely. being relatively avascular. They don't have a good blood supply, which is why if they're damaged, they often don't heal well, which is, you know, that I get on the prolotherapy bandwagon with that one. Um, and so we talked about that particular component of ligaments and tendons multiple times on multiple podcasts. Um, but it, it's, it's a protective niche for this where there's not a good blood supply, can't get the medicines in there well, uh, and then the inflammatory process is less in there as well. Um, so then the, the last piece of this, the, what I call the coup de grace of, of how these things evade the immune system, uh, is what we call biofilms. So the bacteria produce this, uh, I'll call it slime. Uh, <laughs> it produces this stuff which is just this, it's, it's a snot covering uh, over the bacteria that prevent, uh, that prevent it from being bombarded with antibiotics and you know, those kinds of things. In fact, uh, one of the, the, this guy, Sappy, said, for example, it was demonstrated that pathogenic biofilms possess, possess as much as 1,000 times increased tolerance to antimicrobial ag uh, agents, making them difficult to eradicate. So it is a dramatic and important uh, milieu for the bacteria to live and evade the immune system. And these things are, we, we think that's one of the reasons that this has been so difficult to treat because even though we give different bacteria, and we've been doing this for a long time, even though we give these different uh, antibiotics uh, for different stages, all these things, we still haven't been able to completely eradicate it in some people. And we think that the biofilms are the reason for that. Um, it, the, the biofilms protect the bacteria from the host immune system uh, attack and it certainly they shelter it from the antibiotics. Uh, but we see these biofilms, so we know they, we know they exist, both in vitro in a, in a Petri dish, but also in human tissue specimens where they've, cult or they've uh, biopsied something and we have these tissue specimens and we see the biofilms there as well. The biofilms will incorporate calcium and magnesium and over time, <coughs> excuse me, those things will calcify and you know, the, the, they will form this shell, uh, almost like your, your ice cream where you put the, you know, the stuff on it, hardens up. Um, but it forms something so hard, bleach won't even kill the bacteria when, uh, through that biofilm. So we've got a very tricky ninja bacteria that can evade the immune system, that can trigger the immune system through a, a series of mechanisms that's been around for a long time and is essentially all over the world causing a lot of people problems, and we don't do a real good job at detecting it because of all of the issues that we talked about in the first podcast. So so let me ask you real quick. So yeah. for a patient, if they're out there and they go in, what do they ask their doctor to look for? I mean, <laughs> what do they go in and say, hey, I want this is what I want you to do? Well, if you said, I want Lyme disease testing, they're going to follow the IDSA guidelines uh, or the CDC criteria, which says it's a two-step test. Um, and, and we talked about this more in depth in the first podcast, but basically they're going to do an antibody test. And if the antibodies are positive, 
they will do a Western blot or an immunoblot uh, looking for the bacteria. Now, again, I'll, I'll steer you to the first podcast on why so many um, do not meet criteria based on immunoblot. The short story is they're only looking for the B31 strain. And the second thing is they eliminate two well, multiple bands, but specifically two bands that are known to be very specific for Borrelia, uh, for the Lyme disease, because those are the two uh, targets for the uh, Limerix, Lyme vaccine, that was pulled from the market nearly 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, because of a lack of consumer uh, use. So they didn't, and it was, it was only out for a few, you know, very short right. period of time. And so they eliminated virtually diagnostic bands because the, the vaccine would, would mix that up. Okay. So there are multiple reasons why patients with Lyme may get a negative Lyme test. So the short story is, you know, I, I hate to say it this way. If you think you have Lyme disease, you need to go to a practitioner that is versed in Lyme disease. Your regular doctor will probably never find it unless they understand the implications, the impact, the, the testing, how this thing works. And, and you got to understand that Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis. It's, and it's based on a lot of things. A lot of patients don't remember a tick bite. Only, you know, less than, if you look at the studies, less than 50% 50, 50 of the sure. people will get a rash, um, which are two of the diagnostic criteria. So, You've got to put the whole picture together. And there are bands, for example, the, the 41 kilodalton band on uh, the immunoblot is only 50% specific to Lyme disease. So you can get a positive Lyme test by CDC criteria and not have Lyme disease because it may be something else. Right. It's not necessarily specific to Lyme disease. Uh, that doesn't, then you probably have something else going on. So it doesn't mean you have nothing. Sure. It's just, is it Borrelia burgdorferi or is it something else? So very complex illness, very complex disease, very complex testing with a whole lot of nuances. If you think you might have it, go talk to uh, a uh, physician well-versed in Lyme disease. Perfect. Thank you. So there's a whole lot there. Uh, sorry to uh, regurgitate a whole lot of that so fast and so deep, but we got more podcasts coming on Lyme disease. So stay tuned for more. Hope you guys have a great day. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast with Dr. Chad Edwards. Tune in next week where we'll be going against the grain.